So today, we're continuing a series in 1 Corinthians. For those of you who are guests for the first time or you haven't been here, uh, we're pretty far into this now. Uh, we've called this series A Messy Church on a Big Mission. Uh, the church in Corinth and the city of Corinth had lots of problems, but they also had lots of opportunities to make Christ known in Corinth and ancient Greece. And we take that to ourselves to listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say to the Corinthians and and to seek to be on a mission ourselves. Last week, uh, the Corinthians had asked the Apostle Paul about the use of spiritual gifts in worship. And the chapter uh, from last week had to do with helping them focus on the fact that the spiritual gifts that were expressed in worship uh, were really gifts from Christ, and they had to be manifested in unity, and they weren't for like your ego or anything like that. It was for the common good of the church. That's why the gifts have been given. And now today, Paul is going to move on to really get to the heart of this and say, uh, no matter what gifts are expressed in your worship or in the life of your church, they have to be expressed in love. That, that love is, is the common denominator of all true use of spiritual gifts. So when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a time from very early in my life of faith. I think I had only left my pagan lifestyle and, and come to Christ for maybe about two years. And um, I was hanging around with a guy from my hometown. I'm from Monroe, North Carolina. It's 28 miles east of Charlotte. It's not a big urban center. Uh, it's about to be swallowed up by Charlotte. But this friend of mine, who's a believer and kind of a wild guy, um, he invited me to go with him out to a prayer meeting that was happening in the county, uh, sort of out in the country near uh, Monroe. And so we, got, we went out there that night, and I didn't really know what to expect. And when we arrived, uh, there was a middle-aged woman who was kind of sort of the coordinator of the Bible study, and her parents were there, a very, very older woman and her husband. And then it was me and my friend. These people were poor. It was a little tiny mill house. And we were all gathered around in a little kitchen with a linoleum floor and probably a linoleum top table. And uh, we read the Bible for a while. Uh, we, we discussed it. And then they said, Let's have, this is a little bit of a different uh, ethos than our church, okay? <laughs> so uh, they said, let's have a time of ministry, a time of prayer ministry. And, and so uh, the lady who was there, the older lady, uh, shared with that group of only five people, she shared that uh, she had been having severe pain in her right ear and that she had lost hearing in this right ear. So we were like, okay, let's lay hands on you and pray. So we, we laid hands on her. And just as we started to pray, Lord, uh, would you heal her? Uh, I was uh, acutely aware of power. I don't know what to call it. There's a feeling. There's a, there's, it's not exactly like electricity. It's, you know it's not exactly like chill bumps. I don't know how to describe it. But you know that the Lord has acted in that moment. So I forget who prayed for her to be healed, but I opened my eyes and said, we're done. She's healed for sure. I mean, it was just that certain and obvious to me. Now, for those of you who think I'm a superstitious kind of woo guy, uh, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and I have a medical degree and I've seen a lot of stuff. This was a clear, certain to me gift of healing and you won't talk me out of it, okay? She opened her eyes and said, I'm healed. Pain's gone. I hear just fine out of this ear now. 
So uh, I was probably, I don't know if I was 19 or 20 or something at that time. And I was like, whew, we're on a roll here. So the husband, the, the older husband said, my back hurts. I have a backache. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, okay, Lord, this is going to be like a revival. So I turned around and I was putting my hands on it. I was praying for him like nothing, right? <laughs> so anyway, something. The Lord heard our prayers, but it certainly wasn't immediate or instantaneous. So now I just want to call your attention to that story. Because I, as I think about that, what really catches my attention and my thoughts is the dramatic nature of what happened. And I would say I can count on one hand in 40-some years how many times that kind of thing's happened to me. It doesn't happen all the time. And so you, you get caught up in the astonishment, the wonder, the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we want to look at the Apostle Paul today, our attention needs to shift from the gift, that gift of healing, the wonder of it, to the person. Who is this lady? Who is this little tiny lady that lives out in the country? Do I remember what her face looks like? Did I, you know, pay attention to her during the Bible study? And why doesn't she have uh, resources to access health care? And all those kinds of questions that are involved in love. So what Paul's going to say to us today is that, that, that gracious gift of healing that Christ gave her through that time of prayer has to be founded and carried out in genuine love for the person, not as an entertainment act or an ego act or anything else for anybody in the room, not as a curiosity, but out of love. And I think the text that we're going to look at today really supports that, and it confronts our tendency to value and follow people with flashy public gifts, and the evangelical church landscape is scattered with disasters of large groups of people that followed folks with flashy public gifts that didn't have love. So that's what we're going after today. We want to see in this that the Holy Spirit gives gifts from Christ that have to be exercised in the love of Christ that brings His presence and power to bear until He returns. Gifts from Christ by the Holy Spirit are given to bring His presence and power to the church and the world until He physically returns. So we're going to look at this from 1 Corinthians 13, and I hope that it gives you a different spin on a familiar passage. We're going to read it in blocks. The first thing that we want to take up to establish what I'm saying is this, that gifts from Christ, gifts from Jesus by the Holy Spirit, must function in love. Look at verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain or I profit others nothing. I gain nothing. So the text is really pretty clear. Paul is picking out for the Corinthians all these public sort of uh, uh, flashy gifts that they seem to value so much. 
And he's saying, hey, you can speak in tongues all day, tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, you're just like a banging cymbal. You might be a prophet and you might have all kinds of knowledge of things that are hidden from other people, but if you don't have love, it's of no benefit. And if you have faith, and he picks up Jesus' term, faith that moves mountains here. Um, if you have faith and you pray and stuff happens, it's a gift that, that's different from other people. You, when you ask for something, it seems to happen. You have this gift of faith. Um, and have not love, it doesn't mean anything. And finally, if you give away all your possessions and give up your body as a martyr, again, if you look at the translation of that, there's a lot of dispute about uh, the text that goes in there and everything. We're just going to leave that away aside because uh, what we're focusing on here is you're making a sacrificial gift of yourself, either your possessions and your life, but you don't have love, it's of no profit to anybody. I mean, I don't think that you could get a more striking statement of how the use of gifts without the concurrent love of Christ is an anomaly that doesn't, that, that doesn't profit anybody. As I was uh, thinking about this, I remembered a news report from a couple of months ago. There is a town in Arizona called Rio Verde. I tried to do the Spanish on that, Rio Verde. Uh, it's just outside of Scottsdale, and if you read that article, you find that Scottsdale is, is listed as a desert town. I don't know why you would do that, or your Chamber of Commerce might want to look at that, but Scottsdale is just outside of Phoenix. And Rio Verde had about 2,000 houses. Some of those had wells and whatnot, but there were at least 500 households in Rio Verde. When they built this suburb of Scottsdale, they agreed with Scottsdale Township that truck, they were going to buy water in trucks from Scottsdale and truck it out to Rio Verde. And they, you know, I guess they put it in a tank or whatnot, and it was going to supply these 500 houses. So now if you spend a half million dollars on a house there, knowing that you have to truck in water, it, it might not have been the best judgment. But that's what happened. And it went successfully for a number of years but Arizona has been experiencing a drought for the last several years that's been persistent. And so Scottsdale began to warn Rio Verde over time, over about three years, we're not going to be able to keep supplying you with water. So on January the 1st, 2023, they cut off water to Rio Verde. It was done. So now that township has sued them and the governor just vetoed a bill and all that stuff. But the thing I want you to do is I want you to, to picture this nice, suburban house in Rio Verde. I don't know. I can't keep up with what kind of countertop is cool right now because I don't do that. But let's just say it's granite. If it's not granite now, it'll be granite in about four years. So you got your, you got your granite countertop there and you got your double, triple sink. And it's got that big, nice brass or polished stainless steel stuff up there. I'm talking about the $500 faucet at Home Depot, okay? It's got the big hook thing with the spray on it. You can spray everything and the hose and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you got the shower with the tile, the walk-in kind with the glass, with the nozzles on both sides and their brass and all that stuff. And it's all connected to pipes. You got good piping, you got everything. You got everything you need for water, but you don't have any water. And that, to me, is an analogy, clearly, of what Paul is talking about in this passage. You're up there speaking. You are, are, are experiencing gifts of healing. You have administrative gifts. You serve. You help. You pray with faith. 
But if you don't love the people around you, you don't have anything. You got all the faucets, you got all the expensive stuff, but you don't have any water. And really, the water is to bring the presence and ministry of Christ to the world and to the people who are in the body. Now, as I thought about this, it really is troubling in a lot of ways because the landscape is really littered with these anomalies. So I could probably right off the bat tell you at least five or six prominent pastor folks who built big empires with social media and, and Twitter feeds and all everything that you can do, and tens of thousands of people are listening. And then the curtain gets pulled back at some point, and we find that the fruit of the Spirit of love was not attending whatever speaking gift they had. Now, you can make up your own list. And then when I look at that, I go, oh, how can you have a gift from Christ? And in some of these cases, people came to know Jesus. They got saved. They grew. They were blessed. The teaching helped them. I mean, it clearly was something, the Lord was at work there, and yet there was this dark underbelly at the same time. Well, if you go on thinking like that for a little while, you'll eventually stop throwing stones at other people and say, oh, wait a minute. Sometimes when I'm exercising my spiritual gift, I really don't love people very well either. So it's more striking when you have a big platform but it still is ugly when you have a very small platform like yours and mine, right? And so this is really a call to us. First of all, you can ask yourself the question, were you listening last week? <laughs> Did you take your membership vow seriously? Do you have a place to use your spiritual gifts? What is your spiritual gift? Okay, let's back up a step. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Has He given you His Holy Spirit? Has He sealed you with the Spirit? If not, trust in Him. Know Him. And He comes and He really does dwell in your heart. By faith, by grace, forgives your sins. The Father and the Son come to make their home with you. Then He gives gifts. Some of them are deed gifts. Some of them are word gifts. Some of them are public. Some of them are more out of the way. Are you using your gift? And then are you using your gift with the fruit of the Spirit, with love and joy and peace? Now, those of you who are new to all this need to know something. The Bible says that we are those who believe are justified, they're forgiven and counted righteous, they're children of God, they have eternal life in them already, and yet they're still sinners in this life until they die or Jesus returns. So everybody in here actually has this kind of discordance between gifts and the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about. Every single believer in here. So you can just ask yourself. I, just, I, I made this up at the, the early service, and I really like it. So there you are. We have the nice fellowship meal. For those of you who are new, we have a linoleum tile floor thing over there. It's a, called a fellowship hall. And you put up plastic tables, and everybody makes casseroles, like some good and some bad, and you sit around, and you talk about football, and you call it fellowship. It's not really necessarily biblical fellowship, but that's the way things have rolled out. And so at the end of that time, everybody throws their cup of half-finished uh, 
a weak iced tea into those garbage cans there by the side and puts food and stuff in there. And then everybody says sayonara and takes off, except the three people with the gift of service. Right? So if that's you, are you in there hauling that great big plastic bag out of the trash can on your breath saying, I can't believe all these people call themselves Christians. They're not here serving. They're supposed to serve. And I'm, why am I here alone? I alone, Lord, am left to clean up, to clean up the fellowship meal. And so then what has to happen at that point, just for your benefit, is a hole pops in that bag. And, you know, they, there's a little sign on the trash can that says, pour your drinks out in this bucket before you put it in there, but half the people don't see it. And so now you're leaving a trail of, like, sweet tea out the door. Then you have to mop at the end of all that. Anyway, what I'm saying is um, it has happened to all of us, right? So this is just a call. I think this text is a call. Don't let that dichotomy between your gifts and the fruit of the Spirit happen. Be aware, turn back to Jesus, and just stop and say, Lord, do you want to do it this way? I don't know. Shelly always gets after me about this. Like, if I can't serve cheerfully, I won't serve. I don't know. We got to get somebody, to, we got to get a few bitter people to clean up the fellowship hall, right? <laughs> Not really. The thing to do is go, go out there and sit down somewhere and say, Jesus, I really need your help. I believe that you're raised from the dead. I'm sorry I'm bitter. Give me your Holy Spirit. Give me love for people. Uh, this, is, this is your work. Okay, I think we did that one. All right, that's the first point, is that the gifts of the Spirit have to operate in love. The second point that we want to, to make here is that love has the power Union with Christ and experiencing His love has the power to correct your and my particular sins. Now, I was saying uh, again in the early service, uh, I'm about to do something that you might not like, and that's okay, we'll be able to get over it. But have you ever had like a favorite Christmas hymn or a favorite hymn, and somebody says, hey, the theology in that thing's not really right, and it just ruins it for you for life, right? Well, I'm about to do that. And what I mean by that is this next paragraph that we're going to get in 1 Corinthians 13 has been read at a thousand weddings and put on a thousand cards and zillions of things. And, we've, and those of us who've been around in the faith for a while have become almost resi- you know, resistant to its message. And so when we read this, we're going to take it and, and take a new look at it that hopefully takes it out of the sort of postcard uh, era and brings it down into some real life stuff. So let's look at verses four through seven. Paul is going to describe what love looks like to us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, when you, when you read that, the first thing I want to point out to you is that none of those are actually commands. They're, they're not in the, in the voice of command in the language. They're descriptions of what love looks like. It's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast. So, so that's the first thing that you want to see. And then the second thing that kind of you you want to grab on this is that this description of love is not exhaustive. 
All right? Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Everything about it is true. As much as it says, it says rightly. You can meditate on it to get a picture of what love looks like. But just think about 1 John. 1 John says, let us not love with words only, but also in deed and in truth. We always say love is an action. Well, that's not in this text. So the Bible has a bigger picture of love than what's here. So how did Paul come to choose these particular things? And this is the part that's going to you know, ruin your Christmas or whatever, your wedding reading or whatnot, is that Paul is actually making a pointed effort to correct the sins of the Corinthians. Many of these things, he didn't just pull out of the air as lovely, poetical, and lyrical descriptions of love. He's actually saying, you guys need to pay attention to this because you have problems in exactly these areas. Now, the first two aren't like that, maybe. I can't find direct lexical or linguistic evidence of their connection. But the first two really are attributes of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have the potential inside to have uh, share in the attributes of God. So the people are saying to Peter in 1 Peter, hey, where's this return of Jesus that you're talking about? And he says, hey, God's not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, not desiring that anyone perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this this statement about the patience of God, the reason history hasn't ended yet, one of the reasons is because the Lord is being patient with unbelievers. And he's kind. Jesus says that he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. He has, he's just pouring out kindness on people in general. And, and Paul's saying here, love looks like that. It's both patient and it's kind. But then he goes and he says, but, and it does not envy or boast. This boast is actually only used one time in the New Testament. And it's, it's about being sort of a windbag bragger. I'm just bragging all the time. But the envy part is the, the cognate word for an adjective that's used in 1 Corinthians 3 for jealousy. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians 3, they were all divided up behind various teachers. And he's saying love isn't jealous or envious about which camp you belong in like that. So here's a, here's a straight rebuke from those earlier chapters. And then he says it's not arrogant or rude. And in terms of lexical or word connections with the rest of the book. The arrogant is the winner. It has like four different references. Remember, Paul said in chapter four, hey, I'm coming to see you and some of you are arrogant. And when I get there, we're going to find out not just about your talk, but about your power. That's in 1 Corinthians 4. He's he's challenging them about this arrogance. The same thing happens in uh, 5 chapter 2 about sexual immorality. And the same thing happens again in chapter 8 when when he says, knowledge puffs up, but but love edifies. Don't be arrogant. Don't be puffed up and arrogant. So so when he says it's not arrogant or rude, and rude isn't just like not putting your napkin in your lap at a formal dinner or eating with the wrong fork. It's like acting shamelessly towards other people. And then we could go on. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. He says it it does not insist on its own way. Remember the whole thing about food sacrifice to idols was there was a group of people who said, look, we're going to go eat at the Olive Garden at the the Temple of Sisyphus, and we don't care if it bothers your conscience. 
You'll come around eventually. We're enlightened. And Paul says to them later, you were, you were engaging in idolatry in that. You were wrong. The people you said that would catch on were right. Don't insist on your own way when you trample on other people. And we could go on. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That could have reference to lawsuits. My point to, to say all that is this, is that union with Christ and looking at a biblical view of love by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I've been joined to you. You're exalted to the right hand of the Father. I have the Holy Spirit. I've read my Bible. I read 1 Corinthians 13. In this situation, in these circumstances, how shall I think and act? We work that in me. Now, again, the problem here is that he's not commanding us to do these things. And I'm, I'm following Dallas Willard on this. Um, Dallas Willard, I think, makes the really good point that the issue in growing in Christ-likeness is that you want to be a loving person and not grit your teeth and say, I'm trying to be a loving person. Right? You want to actually grow. You want the Holy Spirit to grow you so that your reflex attitudes and your reflex responses to things involve love. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens... Growth in Christ-likeness happens by the cultivation of habits over time. And we ignore this to our peril. So what happens? You get in a big conflict with your family, and all of a sudden you say something dumb, you know, or you, you, you burn up a bunch of relationships because of what you said. And that's because of who you are. Who you are came out. Oh, no, I just had a bad day. And, you know, we, Shelley and I have been joking about this. Uh, this is about our grandchildren, not your grandchildren. They're not sinners. They're either hangry or tired or, you know, we got, and the same thing's true for me. You know, I, I just had a bad day. And you do it for each other, don't you? Oh, I'm, Chuck, I know you, you said something untoward there, but I'm sure you're a bit, you're, you're really burdened down by a lot of stuff. You're not a real sinner, right? Yes, you are. And so the idea is to have Christ change you. So uh, the, I told this story at Presbytery, and I may have told it to you before, but I think it bears repeating in, in these circumstances, is uh, Dallas Willard, the same fellow I was talking about, was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. And this is a world-renowned philosopher. He was the chairman of their department for a little while. He's an expert in phenomenology. And he was teaching an undergraduate class. And, and whatever he was teaching on at that time, he gave the students an opportunity to discuss that subject near the end of class. Now, there was an observer there who actually related the story. Um, a, a person was observing him teaching. Well, one of the undergraduates, and, and I know none of you have, or me, we haven't ever done this before. You're 18 to 22 years old, and you know everything in the world, and you're smarter than everybody else. Well, one of the undergraduates said something that was directly insulting to Dr. Willard and clearly logically false. And Dr. Willard, with gentleness, according to this person, with great gentleness, simply said, I appreciate all your comments, and with that one, we'll close the class for the day, and we'll meet again on Wednesday or whatever. And that was the end of it. And the person came to him afterwards and said, Dr. Willard, you could have crushed that guy to use the modern language of YouTube. You could have demolished him. And he said, 
I'm practicing the discipline, the habit of not having to have the last word. You see, now, why did I tell you that long story? Because he was practicing little by little, day by day, something so that when it was a crisis moment or tempers were up or whatever, he would respond. He had cultivated the habit in Christ, in Christ by the Holy Spirit, of not responding in kind to people. And he said, uh, in the place that I got this story from, he said that um, it's a terrible burden to be right. One of the hardest things that you can do is to be right and not trample on other people with it. So there's a guy who, to me, has grown in Christ-likeness by cultivating habits. So where could this begin for you? Well, if you're in a family, it could begin with families, right? It could begin with children, with husbands, wives. Just think about the defects that you have in love. Now, Paul has a list here. There's nothing wrong with meditating on those, but it's not exhaustive. So for you, you might be a person who's a peacekeeper who's habitually passive. And love really demands that you enter into some kind of conflict with people, but you refuse. You're just going to go off in the corner and put your headphones on and read your book. And if that's a habitual posture for you, you want to say, Lord, make me like Jesus, who when necessary enters into conflict with people. You might be a person who never really listens to anybody else. You see, that's not in the list here, but I think that everyone should be slow to speak and quick to listen. You know, we'll look at the whole Bible. You're always listening to give somebody an answer. You're nodding, uh uh-huh, 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 when you're really thinking about something else. You're not listening to really hear that person out. Well, see, any one of those things that you pick up, you could write down on a card. Nobody uses three-by-five cards anymore. So take your phone out and say to yourself, hey, Chuck, remember to listen to people well for understanding before you answer. And then have it play back to you from your notes or whatever. Put it on your front screen so that you're reminded all the time, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm cultivating this habit. And I just am trying to get you to see these things. One of the places that you can start on figuring out if you love people is to ask somebody who knows you well, who's close to you, if you're married, start with a spouse. You could ask your children. You might have to tell them, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to throw back in your face. Whatever you tell me, I'm just going to take it to heart and listen to you. And I'll thank you for giving me that that input. So just this this is just a quick example. Um, Shelly was kind enough to point out to me on several occasions. I haven't really changed yet, but I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Uh, She was kind enough to point out to me. Shelly's my wife, for those of you who are guests. She was kind enough to point out to me that if I have an idea, everybody has to line up and do it. If it's my idea, everybody has to do it. But if she has an idea, it has to go through the grid of purpose, goals, life purpose, goals, all this kind of stuff. There has to be a big argument for me about whether we're really going to invest our time in this idea. Does it fit whatever? And you know, now that I can see it, it, it seems to me like the right thing to do at the time. But really, it's, in the end, you're just trying to get your own way, right? That's not loving. So I could put that one on the front of my phone. You can ask me next month if I've been cultivating that habit. All right, so here's the point. That union with Christ by the Holy Spirit as you're exercising your gifts, you can concentrate one by one 
on cultivating loving habits. All right? Here's the last thing, and we'll be brief about this, is that gifts from Christ will cease, but love goes on forever. Gifts from Christ will cease, but love goes on forever. Verse 8 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, or the end, comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what Paul's saying here is he's looking at his already but not yet construct. We already know Christ. We already know some things truly, but we don't know fully. We already see Christ by faith, but we haven't seen Him face to face. We're able to, to speak from the Scriptures things that are true, but we don't have the full grasp of all true. But one day, Christ will come, and what has been given to us through spiritual gifts which is partial knowledge, partial understanding, uh, taste of the love of Christ through other people in the body, seeing Him transform our neighbors and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. All that will be consummated at the return of Christ and gifts will really be no more. Do you see that? Spiritual gifts are a temporary means of bringing the presence and power of Christ to us during this life, but eventually they're going to cease. When I was little, preschool, I don't remember the exact time, my dad was a plumber, and we lived up there east of Charlotte, and he couldn't find work, apparently. So I don't really know the whole story. I was probably between four and six or something like that. He was off to Florida. There was a building boom in Orlando, and he went down to Florida, and he was just gone for a while. I don't really know how long he was gone. But... Um, I did know he was gone, and uh, I hate to admit this, but I used to rummage around in my parents' room, and uh, I was looking at my mom's nightstand, and I found a stack of letters in there, and these were handwritten letters, and they had the return address for a place in Orlando, Florida, and there was a stack of them, you know, maybe about three inches high, all crumpled up, and they had a rubber band around them. And so I didn't, just so you know, I didn't read the letters, just so you know that. But I did see them there. And what I, what I concluded about that is that, wow, my dad was away down there in Orlando, Florida, and he wanted to make his presence and love known at home. So he wrote letters to my mom. But those letters were limited in scope because eventually he came home. And she was able to see him face to face. And that's the nature of spiritual gifts. They're like a letter from Christ. See Christ through this other person speaking, praying, serving, administering. But eventually, all that will be gone. And what will remain then? Well, love. You'll know Christ fully as you are already fully known if you trust in Him. No more sin. No more misery. These mirrors were polished pieces of metal. They weren't like our mirrors. 
that you would see very dimly. No more dim vision of Christ, but clear vision. You all understand that Christ still has a body, right? He was born of a virgin, the God-man, and so he continues to be both God and man forever. And he will return bodily, and we will see him bodily as he is. And when we see him, we'll be fully like him. And so I want to sort of leave you today with this thing. It was an insight for me. Probably the rest of you knew this from the time you were six years old. But I always wondered, these what the Middle Ages called theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, why was the greatest of these love? Why, how did Paul decide that the greatest of those were love? And I think that this is the answer. The answer is, faith is going to end. You won't, be, you won't be seeing Christ by faith anymore. You'll be seeing Him in person. And hope will no longer be hope. It will be what you actually obtain in a new heavens and a new earth. But what will remain is this love relationship of intimacy with the risen Christ that you experience now by the Holy Spirit. So the greatest of these is love. And that's why spiritual gifts can't be separated from love. That's why love corrects our habitual sins. And that's why we look forward to seeing the face of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You and we ask You to pour out Your Spirit upon us. Lord, we confess our deficits in love, particularly in our closest relationships. And we pray that at Lexington Presbyterian Church, our gifts would be exercised in love. That you would grant us repentance from pride, from obstinacy. That you would make us have um, in our hearts and in our reflex actions the things that Paul has listed here, plus many more. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, and we thank you that when we love one another, uh, all people will know that you're the Lord. They'll know that we know you because we love one another. So we have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together.